Welcome to Climate Discourse, the podcast of the Carbon and Climate Law Review, For each month, I have a conversation with a representative of a legal discipline about the legal aspects of climate change. I'm your host, Kate McKenzie, Managing Editor of the Carbon and Climate Law Review, a quarterly journal on climate law and regulation. For this month's episode of Climate Discourse, I sat down for a conversation with CCLR editorial board member David Dreesen. David and I talked about threats to democracy, climate disruption, and the role of the judiciary. We also talked about the importance of finding balance in your life, which I really appreciate. So let's jump in to this month's episode of Climate Discourse. David Dreesen, welcome to Climate Discourse. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, David, you have an extensive and varied list of topic areas that you've focused on throughout your career, and I'm so curious about so many of them, but I generally like to start these conversations with some fairly broad basics, so that's where we'll start. So tell us a little bit about your current role or roles, as it might be. Well, recently, I've actually been kind of alarmed about the possibility of democracy loss in the U.S., so... A book of mine is coming out today that's a product of that concern uh, called The Specter of Dictatorship, Judicial Enabling of Presidential Power in Stanford University Press. And um, that book sort of represents the culmination of my work on this democracy, preservation and threats to democracy. And I'm beginning to turn uh, some of my attention back to climate disruption, which has really occupied much more of my career. So as you mentioned, your, your focus for much of your academic career has been on, uh, on climate and uh, particularly the intersection of economics, law, and policy. So, uh, and you've, of course, published a number of books and a litany of academic articles on that very important intersection, but that's not where you started. So you came from law uh, to music, sorry, from the music to law. And I want you to talk a little bit about, well, you know, your music career um, and also what, what motivated you to make that shift from music into law and particularly then into environmental and climate law. Well, um, you know, I was a, a trumpet performer uh, and teacher early in my career. That was what I was doing for uh, my, my undergraduate majors in trumpet performance I got a master's degree at the Yale Music School in trumpet performance as well. And then I um, you know, taught trumpet and played quite a bit uh, from the, uh, throughout my 20s. When I was 28, I went to law school. Um, and I guess um, the motivation for the shift was, first of all, I was always interested in law. I mean, I, I was working on student rights when I was in high school. Um, and uh, so I thought law would be something I was good at. And so when I got sort of frustrated with, with uh, music as a career, it was a fairly logical and obvious uh, choice for me. In terms of environmental law, it was just sort of a matter of, as I was thinking about going to law school, I was thinking about, well, what could I usefully do with a law degree? And I thought that the environmental problems were serious and that this is something that law could bring about. Uh, positive action on. So it became my uh, a focus of mine in law school and a big focus of my career was uh, on environmental law for that reason. And so now now you, you teach still environmental law? Uh, the last couple of years I've taught constitutional law, but okay. uh, 
be, I, I plan to go back to it. I, I've been teaching, actually these days I've taught, in recent years I've taught an interdisciplinary climate course more often than the basic environmental law course. I've taught both. And a lot of years, I, some years I usually want to, um, so you know, I taught environmental law, climate law, and some other things over the years. Climate, climate law, it's not really climate law, it's a climate, this is an interdisciplinary course that's really the science, the policy, um, mm. and the um, some of the political science and the law. Mm. So we've, you know, of course, talked about your academic work and and particularly the the intersection of economics and law. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more. Your your uh, publishing is is extensive in that particular sort of area. But you've also had an extensive career as uh, an advocate, as a practitioner. You were with the Natural Resources Defense Council, for example. You've testified before the U.S. Congress. You've represented U.S. senators in matters relating to environmental law. But you have made another shift in focus in recent years, and you mentioned your your new book. So um, you focus in that book very pointedly on the judiciary and its role in American presidential power. What prompted really that shift and can tell us more about the book? Well, um, you know, I, I credit President Trump with inspiring the book um, <laughs> you know, when he started railing against uh, the enemy of the people using mm. Stalinist language and calling on people to lock up his political opponent, uh, Hillary Clinton. I realized our democracy was in trouble. And so I became interested in understanding how democracy is lost. And I, I, I've been teaching constitutional law off and on. So I, I was aware of our separation of powers jurisprudence. It seemed to me it was excessively solicitous toward presidential power. And so I was interested in the role of the executive in uh, democratic decline. So what I did to, to write the book is I researched democratic decline, and particularly the executive branch role of it in Poland, Hungary, and Turkey, mm. um, especially. It was some little bit of research elsewhere, but that was the main focus of those three countries. And what you see in all those cases, that's probably universal, is that a key to losing democracy is to centralize control of the executive branch uh, in the head of state. And strangely enough, that's what the, a lot of the Supreme Court justices and some scholars are calling for in the United States. We call it the unitary executive theory. And that theory is seen as a theory of original intent and where the court ought to be going by some people and where it has been going in recent years. And I've been pointing out that that's dangerous. The book also looks at emergency power and urges a more a judicial oversight of emergency power. We've been excessively deferential and uh, everything going back at least to Hitler shows that that's a bad idea. We've seen emergency powers playing a role in the loss of democracy in Turkey and Hungary mm. also. And, um, you know, that is a theme that was well recognized before I got into it. So those kind. So I've been looking at how the judiciary could do better uh, in a way that was more protective of democracy you know, without damaging in a serious way in uh, efforts to protect national security and so on, which certainly have some merit. Mm, of course. And so tell us more about the book. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's just been published uh, in, in July. And um, so 
where do you go with this book? Tell us about it. Well, uh, the book, as I say, is these case studies of Hungary, Poland, and Turkey, and also links it to our own history. Mm, okay. So it points out, for example, that the, the framers of the United States Constitution were comparative law people who looked abroad for models. And the Supreme Court has done that as recently as Youngstown decision in the 1950s. But lately, it's been very parochial. And it's this new idea of a imagined constitution that is wildly supportive of presidential control of everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I link these concerns with too much central control. You know, part of it is, I've looked in detail what's been happening in Poland, Hungary, and Turkey, and you see sort of a pattern. Once they change the system, sort of in the way our Supreme Court is trying to do, mm-hmm. uh, to give the president more control over for the prime minister, more control over somewhat independent government entities or multi-party entities. And then they use that control to undermine free elections, to um, undermine, uh, shrink the space for public debate and, and, um, and to persecute and to hurt the rule of law. And so you see in particular, there's a centralization of control over prosecution. I've studied in this book, the centralization of control over the prosecution service, mm. the electoral commissions, and the media authorities. And what you see is that paves the way, way for um, destroying democracy as these things help entrench the leader in power in various ways. And, and you see Trump uh, trying to do that kind of thing. And we've seen it before. Um, Andrew Johnson, after the Civil War, fought the rule of law by replacing people in the government, right and left, really right. nilly. And... Um, uh, Richard Nixon fired people in order to suppress an investigation into his efforts to try to steal documents from the opposition party to try to tilt the electoral playing field. Uh, and we're seeing it now uh, with this effort to, to um, compromise bipartisan electoral authorities in the states and restrict voting. Uh, Victor Orban restricted voting he didn't, and gerrymandered like the Republicans are doing to keep himself in power. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of commonalities there. And uh, so I, I've drawn a pretty careful an, analogies to, to show that um, the kind of things that are pretty well ingrained or there's becoming or trends in the recent Supreme Court decision are exactly what usually parliaments and referenda have done to restructure government, to establish an autocracy. And mm-hmm. so uh, the book is trying to indicate how the Supreme Court could be better and uh, urging that the U.S. not be quite so parochial and look at the foreign experience of how democracy is preserved and and lost. You know, and independent prosecutors, bipartisan electoral commissions, those things are common in the functioning democracies. When you start getting rid of those things, that's when you may lose democracy. It's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, afraid so. Uh, (laughs) Part of this is motivated by climate disruption, because, you know, as long as the majority of the people are controlled over government, uh, there will be demands to do something about climate change. Even in the U.S., we've been, you know, the majority of our people know this is serious and want something done. Uh, And that's where your hope lies. If you get an autocrat in, uh, you know, your chances of getting anything done are certainly the kinds of autocrats we've had lately. Mm. Chances of, of getting anything done can disappear entirely. Be very dangerous. All right. So, speaking of climate, 
um, COP26, of course, this year's climate negotiations that's right around the corner. And uh, given the realities of you know, the U.S. political climate and the current makeup, especially of the Supreme Court in the United States, how do you see the judiciary's role in climate policy going forward, particularly inside the U.S., but also you know, with a view toward the rest of the world? Well, in the rest of the world, of course, the judiciary has occasionally been a very positive force. I mean, you have uh, decisions in the Netherlands and Germany and elsewhere that have, have demanded that governments do more, even demanded that private companies do more mm. uh, to address global climate disruption. So they've been a positive force because they view it as a human rights thing and they take international obligations seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, our judiciary... Well, there's a little prospect of it being a positive force and people are more focused on how negative is it going to be. Um, yeah. So we do have some, some litigation uh, going on in the U.S. that's patterned after the European. It's a little bit, it's a little different, but it's, it's a similar idea that people's rights need to protect, protected, particularly the next generation's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not going very well. It may yet produce something, but it's been having trouble because the, the courts have all sorts of doctrines to protect them from having to decide cases in favor of individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is that the courts uh, can be negative forces in implementing laws that do authorize regulation of greenhouse gases. So uh, Biden has a legislative agenda, um, which I don't think the court would for it, but it's very difficult to get that passed. And uh, you know, some of the spending bills in Congress now have a piece of that agenda. So, well, collectively, they have a lot of that agenda. But there's also going to have to be a regulatory component. And there the courts can, um, you know, it's just a question of how negative are they going to be. They can res- mm-hmm. uh, read Qu- uh, Clean Air Act restrictively. They can buy industry beefs about, they can label discretionary judgments that have to be made as arbitrary and therefore overrule them. And so these kind of threats are difficult and uh, kind of unpredictable, actually. Um, and they, they complicate the efforts to use existing statutory authority to make progress. So do you see the judiciary's role in the United States particularly being more along the lines of, of you know, their, their interaction with the regulatory process rather than um, being activist in the sense of like an Orgenda case or any of the other dozen cases that have been filed in the last year around the world? Well, you know, I, I think the federal judiciary, it's more, more of the case is going to be regulatory and mm-hmm. You know, it'll just be a matter of whether they get out of the way or get in the way. In terms of the positive agenda, you might see some action in state courts. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's going to be tough sledding because the um, the attitudes toward separation of powers in the U.S. is very geared toward letting uh, the political system operate until it does. And then they want to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch, particularly, you know, post-COP to see what what comes out of that. And of course, the U.S. is is such a major player on the world stage, um, especially now that we are in a new administration. It'd be fascinating to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think one positive thing 
And I anticipated this a little bit in an, an article I wrote a full year, few, few years ago called The uh, Populist Political Economy of Climate Disruption, is that um, advocates of climate disruption have gotten smart and stopped framing their arguments as only about dealing with the climate and started talking about uh, generating jobs and generating justice. And, um, you know, if you look over, and, and this has been led to the ideas like the Green New Deal and a great, a great amount of activism among young people who are increasingly seeing this as urgent. And so I'd say there's more of an on-the-ground grassroots climate movement in the last few years than there has been in probably ever. Mm, certainly. More mainstream, yeah. at least. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, and so it's, it's really very heartening to see that. And if you look around the world at the real successful programs, most of them are not squarely aimed at climate change. You know, we don't, some of them we don't even think of as climate policy. So, for example, the French are a huge climate success story. Their utility sector has very, very low emissions from industrial power. How do they get that? They built a nuclear fleet for the nuclear power plant. It's not the way most environs want to go. There are risks associated with that. But, you know, they did that. And they didn't do it for climate reasons. They did it for reasons of national pride. Um, <laughs> but, it, but, it had that, but in fact, there's none of these countries with active climate policies, very few have achieved the kind of low utility emissions that France has. And if you look at biofuels in Brazil, same story. You know, this is a thing for national independence, uh, helping out sugarcane farmers, very little to do with environmental policy. Yet, um, you know, the transportation sector for a large country in Brazil has pretty low emissions. Hmm. And, um, you know, you look at the German feed-in tariff. Now, that hasn't been a climate policy in recent years, but it started out as an agricultural policy. It was a way to help farmers that happened to be producing a little biofuel. Um, and, um, you know, these programs have played a big, big role. And so I think that, you know, a lot of the times, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with climate policy um, in general environmental policy. I mean, God knows we've had great advances in vehicle technology right. because of explicit environmental policy in recent years. But uh, often the, the really big programs have a huge impact are kind of multi-pronged approaches that are not only aimed at the climate. And so the Green New Deal embodies that ideal, and I think it's shifted the debate quite a bit and has led to some real positive stuff, like these spending bills in Congress. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, been described as uh, being known primarily as a critic of efficiency-based law and economics and, and also as a proponent of alternative approach based on, oh, sorry, an alternative approach based on institutional economics and emphasizing stimulation of innovation. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think that's fair. It's not that I dislike efficiency uh, per se, but um, there's kind of two kinds of efficiency. One of them is a fantasy and the other is overvalued. The fantasy is that there's such a thing as optimal pollution control that it matters that we can calculate what it is. And that leads in the U.S. to excessive reliance on cost-benefit analysis, which was designed and functions as a way of thwarting environmental regulation, uh, sometimes a lot, sometimes not so much. But, mm. 
that's a really bad idea and <laughs> it's inequitable and it's just a terrible idea. Uh, in terms of the efficiency-based reforms for um, emissions trading and, and pollution taxes, I don't think those are bad ideas. I think they can be, especially the, the taxation kind of ideas can be very useful, but um, I think people are a little too focused on the efficiency question and, and not enough on the innovation because what we need is a dynamic, what I call the economic dynamics of environmental law. You need a dynamic where the government uh, serves as a source of demand that catalyzes the kind of improvement and innovation that is needed to solve um, environmental problems. And increasingly, the, the, the need for innovation, they're still there, but they're less because we've had that kind of environmental policy. You know, the German feed and tariff, not just Germany, but all these feed and tariffs around the world have had brought down the, the cost of renewable energy. So the kind of dynamic I called for in my work decades ago was, has been unleashed. <laughs> and you see, um, you know, kind of leapfrogging development where the price of renewables is falling like mad, has been for years. And the same thing happened with the vehicle technology when we didn't ask what was efficient but what's the most we could do and started demanding electric cars, they started to produce them and they discovered, lo and behold, this is possible. <laughs> and now you've got General Motors saying, well, we're going to make our whole fleet uh, um, electric. You have Tesla gobbling up market share only on the basis of electric vehicles. And people discover, my God, they're more powerful. They have less repair costs. And they're expensive right now to build. But that, that too will... will uh, come down if the government demands the improvements and people uh, then they'll have to devote their resources to figuring out how to make it cheaper and better. I think it'll happen. Mm -hmm. So this kind of positive dynamic is what you want to aim for. And the fact is, uh, most innovation isn't very efficient. People make mistakes. <laughs> you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, <laughs> they, they correct them. That's how you, um, you know, the, that's how you advance. Um, and so I'm not a huge, I don't, I, I, you know, I prefer efficient to inefficient overall. I try to be efficient my whole life. <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, I, I'm not dead set against emissions trading if it's super well designed. I'm, and I see environmental taxation, like it's, it's a real positive thing for a variety of reasons. But, um, you know, I think the goal should be to catalyze, to get this going in the right direction, catalyze the type of economic dynamic we need not so much efficiency in and of itself. Hmm. So, David, you have, as I've mentioned, an extensive list of publication and, and also experience in, an, in a very broad range of topic areas. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, aside from, from your own work, what are, what are the most interesting developments you're following right now? Is it the Green New Deal? Is it transitions? What are you, uh, what are you, what are you paying attention to? Well, I, I do see the Green New Deal is very, very interesting. Uh, I think it's stated it's a little bit, um, you know, questions about whether it could be realized in exactly the timeframes they're talking about. But, it, but it's got to happen as fast as can possibly got done. We have to go to zero carbon, like ASAP, and it's pointing us in that direction, which is great. Uh, the transitions, I think it's a very interesting question how we can make these transitions just, you know, if we can figure out a way that it's fossil fuel workers get high wages. You want to see those kind of high wages in other right. sectors. You want to see some racial justice out of this. I think these are really difficult challenges to figure out how to do this. And this is part of making this 
populist political economy that I've envisioned and that has been, you know, changed and then promulgated the Green New Deal, make that work. So all those things are very interesting to me. Uh, the other thing I find very interesting is sort of the private law developments in recent years that um, increasingly you have shareholder demands for companies to be greener. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure on fossil fuel companies. There, you know, there's the verdict against Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, there's shareholders taking over board seats on Exxon. Right. The, the broad mutual funds, uh, you know, I reviewed some articles for a 10 best issue uh, of best environmental law review articles in the year in the U.S. And you know, uh, several of the really good ones were about uh, things like mutual company managers who have index funds. They care about not just the company, the individual company that they have a big stake in, because they're so big, but the performance of the market as a whole. And so they want their fossil fuel uh, holdings, the, the fossil fuel companies, to get out of the business as quick as they can, find a better way to invest their money. Mm. And so they're pushing uh, modest steps in that direction, but they could have a big impact because there's no, there's no reason that oil, oil companies, they do invest in other things and they could sh- shift their strategy and shell particulars under some pressure to right. do that. And these other companies are going to come under similar kind of pressures. Seems like there's a lot of pressure on on companies like Shell with the you know there's so many different lawsuits brewing in in uh, various cities in the United States and just throughout the world. So maybe we'll see maybe we'll see some much needed shifting. Taking yeah. taking a slightly longer view and looking toward the next oh, 10, 10 or fifteen years. What do you see as being sort of the biggest challenges that we're going to be facing? Where is your focus beyond the now? Well, I mean, I see two challenges. One is preserving democracy Mm. here and in Europe, you know, and other places. Um, I see this move toward authoritarianism as a big, still an ongoing threat to uh, everything, uh, including climate disruption policy. Uh, in terms of the climate policy itself, God, the challenges are so amazing uh, over the next <laughs> 10 years. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think the task is how to get political systems to match. They're not going to be able to match the science is telling us, first of all. Because the science is telling us is you should go to zero tomorrow. Right. Right. That can't be done. And, and so... Whenever when we talk about, so there's scenarios that are a little more modest than that, that are um, aimed at three degrees or 2.5 degrees, um, and uh, or two degrees and 1.5. But right. um, but uh, the Paris goals, uh, we're on the verge of finding those to be unachievable as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so the challenge is, you know, getting the political systems to adapt to do as much as they possibly can. Because actually, it used to be they're they're seen as economic limitations. I don't think the problems are economic anymore. Renewable energy has come become so cheap. Um, the uh, electric vehicle technology is here. It's a fine. It's a financing. I mean, they to buy, but their lifetime costs are probably lower than their competitors, actually. So, you know, the technology is there. It's just a question of whether 
the getting the political institutions to make a very disconcerting and rapid transformation in the industrial sector, you know, and it, it's really hard. I mean, you know, political systems are hard at big, they don't do well with big transformations. It's big transformations. I know they really don't. Hard. And, 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 and slow. But yeah. And it, yeah, they tend to be very slow and inadequate. And the challenge that the threats, it's not the threats anymore. The crisis is so enormous that it's just demanding um, uh, political systems to change really rapidly and do much better than they have in the past at a time when there are forces that are driving them to collapse. Hmm. Heavy stuff, David. So I'm going to shift shift yeah, to something also, a little lighter. No, we, should, we should go back to young people. Who are oh, well, they're, I mean, the, the young people are just absolutely what give me hope these days. Um, but to, to go to a, to a bit of a lighter note, I meant to ask you earlier, do you still make music? I do. Um, yeah, I'm playing. In fact, I just played uh, for an HBO series. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which I can't name because I'm under a non Fair enough. <laughs> but I, you know, these days I mostly play in um, two groups, um, the Circus University Brass Ensemble, which does a wide variety of music and has some fine musicians in it, a lot of whom were, um, are, are uh, music teachers or uh, professional, some of whom are professional musicians, and uh, a professional group uh, called the Excelsior Cornet Band that plays mostly civil Civil War music on period instruments. Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> yeah, and so we uh, it's been we've been going for longer than the Civil War lasted by considerable. <laughs> 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 we've been I think yeah, I think we're five times the length of the Civil War at this point. Uh, so we've been doing this a long time. And, uh, you know, we, we play, we're a small little group, a really good group of, uh, of people, who a professional group that plays um, small venues. You know, we tend to do libraries, village festivals, um, done some reenactments, um, uh, sometimes college shows. And so, so, yeah, I'm doing, I do some playing, not nearly as much as I did when I was a professional, but I've. I, I, I'm kind of pleased I've been able to keep it going because a lot of professionals, when they, as you know, you know, you, you, I gather you were a musician as well, or still are. <laughs> yeah. But as you know, you know, a lot of people, when they get out of it for whatever reason, they, they end up putting a horn in the case or the violin or whatever it might be, and not doing anything because they're used to a, practicing a ton and you know having really good skills and hustling for work and all that. And they've got another job. They can't do all that. So it's hard to make an appropriate compromise where you can stay in it. <laughs> That's, fair. That's fair. So my my last question to you, David, and you may have already answered it, um, but I, I like to end each episode with this question. And that is, how do you find time to take care of yourself? What is it that you do to relax and maintain some sort of balance in your life? Well, the music is part of that. Right, I assumed so, that that was a big part of it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's, believe it or not, it's not as hard to do, you know, seven hours of writing and then two hours of music than it is to do, you know, eight hours of writing. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a different feeling. And so that, that's part of the balance. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I try to get outside 
Uh, I'm going on a Grand Canyon rafting trip soon. I'm very excited oh, wow. about. Um, and um, I also play basketball three days a week. So, you know, so balance is real important to me. I mean, I, I'm working hard, but I try to keep a routine that has other stuff in it um, that I, I don't think I'm not somebody who can like just do all for 12 hours a day. I've never been like that. I work really hard for a reasonable number of hours. <laughs> something else. <laughs> well, that sounds very reasonable to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, David, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really fun talking with you. And I certainly wish you all the best um, for your thank new book. You so much. And and continue making music and and uh, continue to to you know, keep that balance in your life. Well, thanks very much, Kate. I really enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I'm glad you're doing this series and keeping talking to people about climate disruption. You've got to get serious. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> thanks, Take David. Care. See you. Bye bye. We covered some pretty heavy stuff in this month's episode, but I also was really inspired by David's commitment to finding and keeping balance in his life, and I think I might need to work on that myself. If you want to check out David's book, the title is The Specter of Dictatorship, Judicial Enabling of Presidential Power, and that was published in July of this year, and you can find it anywhere books are sold. If you're enjoying these conversations, please do subscribe to the Climate Discourse Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It helps us spread the word, and also, we really appreciate it. This episode of Climate Discourse was edited by Voyan Ristovoyevich. The music was composed by my dear friend Genevieve Wolf. Special thanks, as always, to CCLR Executive Editor Jakob McKernan for everything he does to make my life easier. Until next time, bye.